dark and dusty drapes Let in some light Tell the bellboy come and get my trunk Cause I'm leaving here tonight Hey everyone and welcome to a new episode of Meryl Streep and the Movies with Zachary Scott Johnson and Meryl McNally. This is Zachary Scott Johnson. Today's uh, episode is an interview with Michael Shulman, who is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Hurricane, Becoming Meryl Streep. Uh, he's also a contributor to The New Yorker, which he talks about and has written over 100 Talk of the Town pieces, uh, including one that he talks about near the end of the episode. You won't believe the lunch that he had right before joining the two of us. Uh, this is actually the first episode of this show that Meryl and I are in the same room for. I was in New York, and so we got together and interviewed Michael Shulman at his home. He was kind enough to invite us over. So thank you to him. We kind of start this interview right in the right in the thick of it. We didn't really kind of say go. We just kind of started talking. And, and uh, so there's no definitive beginning. So enjoy this episode. Uh, you can email us at MerylStreetPodcast at gmail.com. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. And we'll be back soon with another movie review soon. Normally we do, we kind of start with the like, what have you seen lately? It's like the only non-Meryl related segment mm-hmm. um, of the show, but we don't have to do that. Unless you've seen something that you want to talk about. I mean, I've seen a bunch of good things lately. I mean, I saw The Irishman, which I'm Ooh. so obsessed with. I went to a screening of it. Um, it's fantastic. Is, I mean, is it? It's just like, incredibly, you know, the performance that was a big takeaway for me was Joe Pesci's. Interesting. He was fantastic. And there's a story in the Times right now just about his career, which I haven't read yet, but I I loved it. And then Marriage Story, I'm which so is just excited. out, is so good. Is it? So, yeah. Do you think Laura Dern's going to get the Oscar for that? Is she... Um, well, she'd be up against J-Lo, so maybe. I mean, she she's fantastic in it. Um, she plays a sort of really put together shark divorce lawyer but I'm I'm kind of rooting for Adam Driver for best actor and mm. I think he's fantastic in it and I just wrote a long profile of him so I spent a lot of time with him and talking about the movie and oh my gosh I mean but that both of those movies really blew me away interesting so The Irishman you went to because it's at a Broadway theater is oh, that where you saw it or did you see it in I one of the movie theaters I went to a press screening oh. that uh, I guess Netflix or someone invited me to and I just, you know, it was a 10 a.m. screening. So by the time I got out of there, it was mid-afternoon. Right. <laughs> it's like it's like going on a long flight. Yeah. Wow. It is almost four hours, isn't it? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, but it doesn't it doesn't drag. I mean, you really, I I would see it again. Wow. I'm really excited. We actually had the Scorsese uh, talk on our last thing because I was talking about that. I know you're less excited about it than I. I can't wait. I I love Goodfellas. I love Casino. Both of those are bloated in terms of length of time but like just so well done and so engaging you know that it just I don't know so I'm excited to see it it's good to know that it's so good I actually have only heard good things about it too I haven't heard anything negative at all so I guess it's delivering yeah that's really good it's very much kind of in the spirit of good fellas except it's like old fellas (laughs) you know it's about it's about aging and sort of getting well I don't want not to give too much away but you sort of like facing your own obsolescence okay in a way that's very moving and I think is very resonant with Martin Scorsese himself and how he's been speaking out against Marvel movies and everything Mm -hmm. 
like the way it used to be it was better and there's there's a lot of that in the movie so interesting it's very interesting how did how did you feel about the de-aging stuff was it were you, you know, aware of it yeah i mean it was i thought i was thinking about it a little bit when it started and then you kind of forget about it but you know it it's it's not creepy like cats or anything <laughs> but it's not like uncanny valley but you know, you can tell that they have 70-year-old bodies. I mean, when they're walking around, De Niro's kind of hunched over like mm-hmm. an old man, like a little tentative in his, you know, in his body language. You know, he doesn't seem like an actual 40-year-old, but the facial stuff is, it's well done. I, yeah. Okay. It's well done enough that you stop thinking about it after like a half an hour. So that's fascinating. That's good. Yeah. That's, technology is impressive. That's where we're going. Has anybody else seen The Dolomite Is My Name? The no. no, it's in my queue though. It's so good. That's that's yeah. what I wanted to say. I well, we can talk maybe next time about like the Broadway stuff. But Dolomite is my name. Is really good. Like yeah. surprisingly good. It's a little bit uh, kind of more. It's more like old school Eddie Murphy than I expected it to be. Mm-hmm. Like it's really crass. It's really like kind of his old school. I don't know. It it wasn't exactly what I expected. Uh, not really knowing much about that whole story, but I think I think he might be in line for an Oscar. I know there's been a lot of maybe, you know, he's kind of on the bubble if you look at the predictions that most websites have. He's yeah. like in that maybe fifth or sixth spot. I can't I can't remember who's splitting that vote. Him and one other person are like, you know, one of them will get it, but the other won't. But those yeah. those prediction things are. There's usually at least one surprise anyway, so you never know how those go. Um, I'm never rooting for anybody to 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 not win, but but it is sort of enjoyable to see his reaction when he loses. <laughs> he's so theatrical about it. <laughs> I, he walked out after he lost. Yeah. Didn't he? He yeah. he walked out after losing for Dream Girls. Dream Girls, yeah. Huh. Yeah. He was not happy. Good. Yeah. I think more people should do that. Just I know, right? Have an out. honest reaction. Bye-bye. <laughs> Didn't Spike Lee do that? At the, you know, when he lost something to uh, the the year of the Green controversy. Book? Yeah. He tried to walk out, and then he couldn't. He couldn't oh. actually get out. I think everyone should do that when they leave. They should just be like, "Screw this! I'm out of here. Meet me at the bar." My my favorite. You guys probably know all about this, but when Samuel L. Jackson was nominated for uh, Pulp Fiction and lost to Martin Landau, which was another one of those like career awards, not really yeah. for that performance. You can literally see him going, "Fuck this!" It's <laughs> <laughs> <This is> amazing. <laughs> it's pretty good. There's a couple other like that where you can actually see it's you know they practice their face their losing face they have to well yeah but... well it's like the Miss America phenomenon where the winner balls her eyes out but the the losers are all smiling happy yeah <laughs> and it should be the opposite <laughs> it is did you see anything that you wanted to talk about oh gosh film wise no I haven't watched any films lately I've been so I spent I spent I spent the weekend in Disneyland with my sister like reliving my childhood which was very fun (laughs) and exhausting (laughs) and crowded (laughs) so So I haven't seen anything lately no that's all right I'm trying to think oh I did watch The King the David Michaud film on Netflix and um I had read mixed reviews about it. I really liked it, but I also had like earphones in and was fully focused on the performances, and mm. I, I really really enjoyed it. They have a nice trailer for that on Netflix. It looks yeah. somewhat. It they does. They adapted I, it well. Did they? Yeah. I find myself with with that kind of material right now when I see 
when I see something like that, I'm like, I want to see that. I'm not in the place to see that. It's so it's also dark and long. There's a lot of long movies out right now, really long movies. And I don't I don't know. I just like dark and long. I'm not in a place right now where I have time for a bunch of long, dark mm-hmm. movies. So you'll save that, you'll save it for the Irishman. It's interesting <laughs> that all of our choices for this segment have been Netflix movies. I That's know. true. It tells you something. Yeah. Is really I mean, I can't actually remember the last time I well. went into a movie theater. It's been a couple months, for sure. Yeah, I don't, I don't go into a movie theater very often, which is sad. I, I, st- I still do go. Um, I don't I, it wasn't that. I think Judy was the last thing I saw. Okay. Um, and that, that was recently. But I think, um, yeah, there is something about the... Netflix is, it's good and bad, as, as like everybody's talking about. It's not like the big screen experience, but it's so much more convenient. I don't know. Our TVs are so big now that really the problem is you can look at your phone, where in the movie theater, you know you're not supposed to. You you know, you're like focusing for two mm-hmm. and a half hours. When I'm at home, if I'm watching Netflix, I don't always do the thing where I just focus on the movie, which it's a different experience than watching because of yeah. that, you know? So that's the part of movies that I think people are missing with with Netflix movies. Well, I saw Marriage Story and The Irishman in theaters, Mm -hmm. which I would recommend, especially for The Irishman, because you need to just get lost in it and not think about how your day is going by. Right. You know, it's (laughs) like, you want to sort of emerge, you know, three and a half hours later and feel like you've been somewhere else. Right. Well, and there's, I think there's a reason that Netflix in all of their choices and everything that they're doing, you'll notice they're not really making very many action movies. They're still saving... I mean, every once mm-hmm. in a while they do. They did that um, that Brad Pitt one that was supposed to be better a couple of years ago. Um, that Even the Will Smith, the, the zombie thing that everybody watched and nobody... You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. That Will Smith one? Bright. I think it's called Bright. Yeah. Um, so they're not like going full like I think they're doing the like smaller dramas and comedies I don't know I guess I haven't really thought about that so maybe I'm wrong but it seems like no I think you're right they do a lot of episodic content too it's more nowadays if you're going to spend $15 $20 or whatever to go see a movie it's usually for me as it is I think for most people is this is this a movie I need to see in the theater? And what qualifies it for me is like, is this something, if it's something smaller like Judy, I can watch that at mm-hmm. home and I don't lose much from that. You know, it's better in the theater. I think everything's better in the theater, but there are certainly things that make a difference watching on a big screen and on a small screen, mm-hmm. you know? So it's interesting to see which falls into which category, I guess. Maybe Netflix is being purposeful in what they're kind of choosing to spend their money on, but yeah. I don't know. Well, let, let's dive in with some Meryl. Okay, so her again. Let's start at the beginning. Where did the <laughs> where did the book where did the genesis for the idea come from? Um, well, to tell the truth, it had a lot to do with her awards show speeches, which I became completely obsessed with. This was probably around ten years ago when she started just winning everything, um, and I. Uh, I became kind of just obsessed with her acceptance speeches, like, um, you know, when she won the Emmy for Angels in America, and she said, there are some days when I myself think I'm overrated, but not today. (laughs) And then, of course, um, when she won the Oscar for uh, 
for the Iron Lady and said, and when they called my name, it was like I could hear half of America going, come on, why, her, again. But whatever. <laughs> Which, of course, gave the book its title. Right. Um, around, so anyway, I, I kind of just, I started memorizing them, like to recite at parties and stuff. And then my friend Rachel and I, at some point, started this show called uh, You Like Me, which was an evening of of acceptance speeches, which we had like comedians and downtown performers and, you know, uh, just funny actor kind of people reciting award show acceptance speeches verbatim, like as as oh dramatic monologues. I love that idea so much. And we did it, yeah. we did it every year um, in a variety of places. Most recently it was at Joe's Pub. And it was always like the night before the Oscars or the weekend of the Oscars. Um, yeah, it was really fun. So we got like, um, well, we had uh, Billy Eichner before he was super famous, did um, <laughs> Elaine Stritch's Emmy speech. Uh, we had, uh, I don't know, Julie Klausner did Patti LuPone's Tony speech. Anyway, and I always did a different Meryl Streep speech every year because I was like, well, I'm not going to run out right. of <laughs> acceptance speeches, so I'll just do a different one every year. And... Uh, and so I, I just sort of like became, that was like my one party trick. Around the same time, I had an interview with her. I met her, um, so I work at the New Yorker and I write a lot for the Talk of the Town section. And at some point, I think this is also 2009, I, I um, covered a play reading she was doing at the Public Theater um, of this play where she was, it was like a dysfunctional family drama and she was playing the mother and two of her children were playing her children. And so it was before her kids were like in everything. And I just thought that would be a fun um, premise for a piece, just saying like, oh, you know, Meryl Streep's kids are actors now. I mean, this was this was news at the time, you know. And so they after this show, they had this reception um, backstage just for kind of the cast and their friends. And I went, I got sort of, I went in there and to, to talk to them all. And I was obviously so starstruck to talk to Meryl Streep. And even though she kept sort of like flitting by, like saying two words and then running away. Um, but at one point she asked uh, a waiter, cause there was like a public uh, reception going on nearby. And she said to a waiter, uh, can you get a, does anyone want white wine, white wine, white for Michael. Okay, go. So then a few minutes later, the, the waiter comes back with a tray of white wine glasses and starts handing, and she, Meryl starts handing them out to everyone grandly. And she tries handing me one glass of wine. And I said, oh, you know, I don't have a free hand because I had my tape recorder and my uh, notebook and pen and everything. And so she just placed the wine glass on her palm and held it out and said, well, I'll be your cocktail table. Everybody needs an end table. And then all of her kids who were there, like Grace and her son Henry, like also stuck out their palms, like doing the same thing. And I just had this moment where I was like, okay, Meryl Streep is my end table right now. Like, <laughs> it was so surreal. And so that just kind of like pushed my Meryl, you know, fascination into the stratosphere, this very sort of brief encounter where she was at my cocktail table. Anyway, sorry, this is the long version of the story. I, of how, I, amazing. how I wound the up doing The long version is what we want. Yeah. So, so um, anyway, and then, uh, you know, as a certain point after that, I was contemplating wanting to do a book project and was talking to an agent about it. And I guess I, the, the, the thing that really clicked for me is that 
you know, he was, I was, he was asking me like, what are you obsessed with? And I was like, well, I mean, Meryl Streep for one. And I was also surprised that there were no really good books right. out about her. Right. You know, there were, a, there were these two kind of airport biographies from the 80s, mm-hmm. um, which I own, but, you know, they're not, you know, researched biographies. They're all kind of like, you know, cut and pasted from, uh, you know, magazine profiles and whatever. And it just seemed crazy that there was no, you know, contemporary, well-researched biography. But I was so intimidated by the idea of writing a biography with a capital B kind of soup to nuts and also felt like it was a bit premature because she's obviously still going. And I kind of knew that I wouldn't get, I, I predicted that I wouldn't get her, you know, a ton of cooperation from her because I figured if she was going to have an authorized biography, she'd have one already. But what, so what really clicked with me was this agent um, saying, well, you know, you don't have to do a biography. You can do, uh, sort of micro history of something, you know, and he, you know, and the, one of the books that we talked about was um, Just Kids by Patti Smith, which is a memoir not about her entire life and career, but it's just about this early period of her and Robert Maplethorpe being, you know, young, mm-hmm. you know, starving artists at the Chelsea Hotel. And so when he said that, I thought, oh, I, this can be a sort of telling a story and not just you know, going through every single movie, every single year of her life. And so that's where I came up with the idea of doing just her origin story, basically, her rise to fame, her coming of age in the 1970s. And the more I thought about that and sort of looked at what it entailed, the more it just, it connected with other things I was interested in. Um, You know, I'm a real theater person, and these were her theater years, and uh, there was all this great history of public theater and Joe Papp and Shakespeare in the Park, which I grew up seeing. Um, There was the Yale Drama School part. I went to Yale as an undergrad and sort of always knew about this golden age Mm -hmm. at the drama school with her and Sigourney Weaver and Wendy Wasserstein and Christopher Durang and all that. So that really interested me. And then, of course, there there were these two love stories, uh, the sort of tragic love story of her and John Cazale, which very little was out there about, and then the redemptive love story of her and um, and Don Gummer. And it just shocked me that that all happened at the same time that she was becoming famous, that she was doing Kramer versus Kramer and Manhattan and starring in Shakespeare in the Park in Taming of the Shrew. So I could see the arc of the story very clearly and thought, okay, this is like a book I can actually do and I won't spend the next decade of my life doing like a doorstop <laughs> biography of Meryl Streep, which like someone else can write. Yeah. Um, right. So that's really how it started. Wow. That's amazing. That, that was... Great. I'm so happy you told the long version of that. <laughs> yeah. Well, the cocktail table story That's is amazing. so close to my heart. Well, she's yeah. so well known for hating those other two biographies, you know, that it's it's one of those things I cannot, I don't know if you were aware of that, but like she is outspoken at, very publicly about really hating, especially the one, I guess I only know of the one, I forget what it's called, it's the bigger of the two. Um, but like she was so upset about that coming out that I wondered too about how the experience was with her camp and her people, whether you, you know, pitched it as something that, you know. Yeah. Well, you know, so it was very tricky, obviously, because I like pitched the book and got a book deal before saying anything to her because I just kind of figured, you know, knowing everything I know about her already, I know that she's 
not going to be super interested in having me come over and just because I announced that I, you know, hey, guess what? I'm writing a book, you know, about you. Mm-hmm. Can I come over and you tell me everything about John Gazelle? Like, I just knew that that was not going to happen, mm-hmm. but I felt like the book was worth writing anyway. And so about a month or so into my research, I started with the Yale section mm-hmm. and I was calling up in part because being an, uh, an alumnus, I, I had access to the, the alumni directory, so I could just like <laughs> look up people and find them very easily. Nice. So I was calling up these classmates of hers and talking to them at some length and realized, okay, wait, I need to actually figure out how I'm going to tell her about this because otherwise she's going to hear about it through the grapevine, and I, and I don't want that. So I wrote her a letter, a kind of long letter saying who I was, reminding her that she had been my cocktail table. (laughs) And not even asking for an interview, just being like, here's what this book is about. Here's what my interests are. You know, I'm this theater kid from New York City who loves Joseph Papp and whatever. I'm not like, you know, some random Mamma Mia fan who is, you know, writing a kind of celebrity biography. I really want this to tell the story of this whole community that, uh, you know, yada, yada. And uh, I heard back in about a week from her through wow. her publicist, um, a long note from Merrill, which um, was really fascinating. So basically, it was a lot of, uh, basically she was at like, it was all the reasons why she wouldn't want someone to write a book about her, and which I completely expected. And the line that I loved about from it was, um, she said, uh, leave me to the thing I love. I love acting. But to be called the greatest living actress or the best actress, a designation not even my own mother would sanction, is neither good nor useful nor valuable. It is a curse for a working actor. And in a way, I completely got that. Because at the time, I had been studying her early life and seeing how, you know, she, in high school, she had been the valedictorian, not valedictorian, the, uh, the, uh, homecoming queen and then she goes to Yale drama school and she's suddenly the you know the star student and then like the year she gets famous as a movie star 1979 she's suddenly on every magazine cover and she always everywhere she goes she kind of gets thrust onto this pedestal and then feels very uneasy there because it kind of pits her against other uh you know her peers Mm -hmm. and yet she keeps kind of finding herself in that position so in a way this letter really help me understand something about her, which I wrote about in the book, is this sort of the idea of being up on the homecoming float and finding herself there over and over again. Um, so that was helpful. It gave me some insight into her, and it also was like, okay, you know, I'm, I, just, I basically I wrote back and was like, well, I, okay, I'm, I'm not going to, my book's not going to be called Greatest Living Actress. That I, I understand that. And, um, you know, I understand where you're coming from completely, and really I, all I want to do is, you know, talk to some of the people who knew you then um is that okay and she basically was like it's fine you know like if you want to talk to people that it'll be up to them to decide what to do and that was so helpful for me because Mm -hmm. you know the worst possible scenario would be her kind of taking some time to reach out to every single person she knew and being like don't talk to michael shulman uh, which i've heard happen in other cases of, of biographies um, you know, the best case scenario would have been come on over to my apartment. Right. I'll tell you everything, uh, which I had no expectation was going to happen. So after that, I just started going to people, and um, you know, 95% of the people I approached 
for interviews said yes. People were really happy to talk about sort of the good old days. And part of the concept of the book that was helpful was that I wasn't talking to a lot of movie stars about the recent past. It was really all like, tell me about working on this Shakespeare in the Park show from 1979. And, um, And people love talking about that stuff. Um, so yeah, but so it was it was a kind of tricky um, it was like a tricky little tango to, with with her sort of existing, being out in the world, not helping but not hindering in a way, which I thought was a really good way to play it from her perspective because you know it, it was it was very gracious, honestly. I mean, she could have made it very very difficult, right. and she didn't. Right. Well, and it's interesting too because my thought as somebody who knows nothing about any of it really is I found it kind of I I would feel like for somebody like her who is established whether she likes it or not as the greatest you know it's not a title she would put on herself but also to have no real legitimate work about you in in book form out there it would seem like she would be open to that in a way of like somebody's gonna do it at least she was aware of who you were had met you before probably had some like y- you have yeah. legitimacy through your work why wouldn't she choose to say yeah let you do it instead of run the risk of somebody else yeah i guess i mean i think she just generally does not like people to pay too much attention to her life story <laughs> because she says you know i want people to know me through my characters and whatever but you know honestly people are aware that Meryl Streep is a person who exists outside yeah. of her character. So <laughs> it's a bit of a lost cause. But also, you know, that letter did really help me because part of why I, you know, I say that I was so obsessed with these acceptance speeches. What I loved about them is that she had sort of crafted this persona for herself as this kind of queen of Hollywood who cuts herself down to size and yet is grand and, you know, sort of over the top about you know, calling herself overrated. So I, I don't know. I just, she had sort of reached this point where she was in her sixties or yeah, I guess she was still in her sixties then. Um, and had sort of gotten to the, just the top of Hollywood for a second time and really had this way of playing that role. And yet it made me wonder, you know, who was she before she was the queen of Hollywood? Right. And was there a time in her life that was just sort of, you know, like Lena Dunham on Girls, you know, just kind of aimless and wandering and trying to figure out what to do with herself. And I thought that would be just a sort of, there was something really nostalgic and wistful about that, but also I felt like it would be more, I don't know, like honest and less polished and the stuff I would find would be a little more like just gritty and interesting, um, which it was. And it, it and it sort of sidesteps that thing about her being this um, greatest living actress. Yeah. It's like yeah. an it's like an antidote to that. It's like here's here's who she was before she had all that here's the human being acclaim kind of stuck to her. Well, yeah. and the other thing too before we like move you know potentially move on from this subject too is like the other side that I could see is if somebody had a somewhat tumultuous or real tumultuous childhood, like having an aversion to talking about that. Like I'm mm-hmm. listening to Demi Moore's autobiography right now, which by the way, did you know she grew up in Roswell? Yeah. yeah. That's I read it did you? <laughs> because she grew up in, I'm from Roswell, New Mexico. Ah, I didn't know that. So I've been listening to it. And I'm not even like, I wouldn't consider myself a Demi Moore fan necessarily. I don't dislike her in any way, but I wouldn't like, I'm not like, Oh, I love Demi Moore. But I was curious about her book mostly because of all the headlines it's been recently. But like, 
wow, really tumultuous childhood. Really, like, crazy shit happened to her. Meryl didn't really... I mean, the Cazal stuff later was certainly interesting, but it wasn't like she had a dysfunctional childhood, really, in any way, from the sounds of it. You know, she had a pretty idyllic uh, experience growing up from the sounds of it. She had parents who loved her, siblings who loved her. She she had opportunities, you know? Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like there was something in her past that she was afraid that would get out at least that I would be aware of yeah you know no I think it's yeah it certainly wasn't that and you know I do think she believes that there's a sort of weird thing about actors being public figures Mm -hmm. and drawing attention to their lies and like I get that I mean I feel like it's very much to her credit that she sort of lives as a normal person in Connecticut when she clearly doesn't have you know could be this sort of Hollywood person she really doesn't sort of live a celebrity life so much and you know she had four kids and raised them and somehow was like a you know a mother to her children like in some of the busiest decades of her career um so yeah I mean I completely sympathize with that and I sort of tried to write the book from a place of like understanding uh, you know I certainly didn't want to antagonize her with it and I didn't find anything that would antagonize her in her in her life story um but to me there was you know she's a major cultural figure and we should know something about her and like exactly how did she like did how did she learn acting can it be learned where did this talent and this um you know this this incredible level of craft come from yeah, that's a better way of saying what I was trying to say earlier with the idea of like, whether you want it to exist or not, like you are somebody who's worthy of having a book written about you that's legitimate. So mm-hmm. I guess I could see if you were that person wanting some level of control over it, perhaps. But um, I don't know. Yeah, that it seems to me so much like an in, 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 inevitability that it just seems like I don't know. It there should be that book. I'm glad there's that book, and we wanted to know about Meryl's childhood. It's a so glimpse. Satisfying. It's a glimpse into the world that we don't know. You know, yeah. we don't know anything about her growing up because there were no scandals. There was no craziness. So, you know. Yeah. Anyway, the thing that was tricky was the whole John Cazale part because that's really, I think, the sort of third rail of her life. You know, it was something that was so overwhelming and so tragic and happened to her very, very young you know she was too. in her 20s it was right again it was right as she was becoming a movie star right. she had to take care of this guy with cancer who was the love of her life and then he just died how did you go about sort of that particular piece of the story um and, and sort of balancing that well i you know a lot of his friends were around a bunch mm-hmm. of people who you know i talked to his brother um, this wonderful man who just died this a few weeks ago named Marvin Starkman, who was a college friend of John Cazale's. And um, there had been a HBO, a short HBO documentary about him. So that kind of gave me a sense of who to, to contact. I mean, I really found, I sort of fell in love with him as I was writing because there's something about him. You understand why she completely fell for him. I mean, he was so strange I mean he you know these stories about how he would take like you know 20 minutes to to um to 
count the change for the, you know, at the toll booth and, you know, this sort of, uh, or he would stay up all night tuning his color TV. And so this sort of obsessive, you know, otherworldly quality of his, um, I just found so endearing and, and he was so different than her. Um, yeah, I mean, I had to tell you guys, I, a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. so I didn't hear from her. This may be skipping ahead to a different part yeah, of the conversation. I didn't hear from her when the book came out. You know, Terry Gross asked her what she thought of it, and she gave this sort of answer that was all over the place, very ambivalent. It was like, oh, well, he was a, he's a perfectly nice man, but uh, I begged him not to write the book. But it was done in good faith, but I, I didn't read it. You know, it was like kind of all over, all, all over the map, and I was like, all right, well, I guess she has a lot of different feelings about it. <laughs> at least in public. But then over the summer, you know that week when everyone was calling each other Fredo? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like Chris Cuomo and then Trump got in on it and it was like Fredo was just being tossed yeah. around all over the place as an insult. Well, I really, having written the book and having sort of fallen in love with John Cazale, I really felt like someone needed to defend his Fredo. work or defend Fredo, really. <laughs> so I wrote this piece for the New Yorker website about, about it and kind of... It was, it was a little bit about just jumping off of the news of the moment and then talking about, you know, how Fredo is a really complex, tragic figure in the Corleone family. And um, this great actor, John Cazale, brought that all out, all these different colors of this sort of guy who was basically the runt of the litter. And um, it just turned into me gushing about John Cazale. So that came out on a Tuesday. Thursday morning, I get my second email from Merrill in five years. <laughs> Wow. Thanking me um, for writing it. And it, I was just like flat floored because, you know, she writes, um, you know, she was like, I, I had, she said, like, thank you for the ambush of emotion that came with this piece. You know, I, I had wanted a white knight to ride from the, into this fray and defend John and his beautiful work and oh. understanding of human frailty, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and there you were on, your, on a white knight with your flaming sword. And I was like, <laughs> oh, my goodness, this is. That's I really don't know. <laughs> you know, so I feel like in the end, that was obviously such a sensitive subject yeah. in the book and in life. But, you know, had I not delved into it so much and learned so much about John, I wouldn't have, you know, felt this urgency of saying something about him this one week and gotten this re- reaction from her, which was very warm and... Uh, Pretty overwhelming, I yeah. have to say. I can't imagine getting an email calling me a white knight from Meryl Streep. I know. <laughs> <laughs> <It's> very intense. <laughs> well, when Meryl Streep shows up in the in the two thing, you know, does your heart skip a beat thinking, okay, this is it? I mean, this is about the book. It's either fuck you or I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, well, it was. I mean, it wasn't. A, these are not emails directly from her. Oh, these yeah. were from someone from at her, her publicity yeah. office. Sure. But this one had the subject line, a note from Meryl. Yeah. And this is, you know, two at least two years after the book came out. So I wasn't what? sitting there expecting to hear from her. I mean, I, right. pro- I maybe was, you know, when it first came out, but didn't. Um, so it was completely out of the blue. It's hmm. amazing. It's so funny because you <laughs> you talk about your obsession with her acceptance speeches. And we, <laughs> we happened to record our pilot episode the day before her Golden Globe speech where she went after Trump. Oh, wow. And it... It's, it was a good time for our podcast. It was. Yeah. It sort of launched the podcast in a very successful way. So yeah. that we got a lot of listeners very quickly yeah. uh, because she was just sort of on the on the public's brain, yeah. on their minds. 
I know. It was, that was, I, I remember feeling that day, like, you know, my Twitter feed was all people talking about Meryl Streep. Mm-hmm. And it was, I sort of felt like being John Malkovich when he goes into his own brain and everyone's just saying Malkovich, Malkovich, Malkovich. It's like, oh, wow, this is sort of, everyone has jumped into my brain. I'm, I'm pretty much thinking about her all the time. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. What what was uh, something? I, this is kind of a generic question, but you never know what will come of it too. What in the in the research that you did for the book? What was the most surprising thing that you found out about Meryl Streep? What was something that you didn't expect to learn? Um, I guess the main the, the sort of main overarching theme that was surprising was feminism because mm-hmm. I didn't go in really that wasn't really part of my thinking going in and then I realized how important it was to talk about second wave feminism in the 70s and how that shaped her and um, how outspoken she had been on occasion as a very young actress um, and how that played into all sorts of things you know that summer within she that she was playing Catherine the Shrew and you know, doing Kramer versus Kramer, you know, she was reading Jermaine Greer and, you know, sort of modeling Kate on Jermaine Greer. And it just, it just, it just kept bubbling up in a, in a way that excited me. Cause I mm-hmm. thought, okay, this is actually something that helps contextualize everything she's doing now, you know, whether it's uh, campaigning for Hillary Clinton or, you know, doing suffragette or, you know, the speech where she uh, called, Walt Disney, a gender bigot, like all this stuff was happening around the same time that was like, oh, Meryl Streep is this really, you know, outspoken uh, feminist. And finding the seeds of that was really exciting. And and then just the kind of plot wise, like everything I found out about Dustin Hoffman and Kramer versus Kramer was like, I just, I didn't expect that. And, you know, I just, I I sort of thought of, I mean, it was just... What can I tell you? I, I learned a lot. A part of it, some of it was actually just out there, but had been sort of told by various people as like a funny story. Like she talked about him slapping her on the Graham Norton show, I think, just as like a fun, like a funny aside. And as I talked to people who worked on the movie, they were, they said they were shocked and horrified when that happened. And then some things like Dustin had sort of bragged about, about how he had, you know, made the scene better doing this particular thing and you know and then I would talk to you know Robert Benton or um this guy who was a a, a assistant producer and they were all saying you know well Dustin was a nightmare and he you know these were his methods of quote-unquote method acting of sort of getting performances out of people and you know I mean it just it, it I, I don't know. As I sort of nailed down that part of the story, I thought uh, it was all surprising. Yeah. We actually, we spoke to Benton too. And I think actually when we spoke to him, mm-hmm. I think the, there was an excerpt of, an mm-hmm. excerpt of your book that had come out. I don't know if it was with the New Yorker, was it Vanity it was, Fair? Yeah, it was Vanity Fair. Okay. Yeah. And so that was, we had a whole conversation before we were like, well, you know, how hard do we push Robert Benton? First of all, he's 90 years old, yeah. but you know, we want to know what, you know, this is, this sounds crazy. And again, it's that whole sort of like looking through the lens of today, he would never have gotten away with it. Or he would, uh, you would hope that he would never get away with something like that today. But in the seventies, Dustin, you mean Dustin? Yeah. Yeah. Um, in the seventies, you could see how it just wasn't something that like would stop a movie from being made. So like, I feel like that kind of stuff was happening on film sets way more than we're aware, you know, stuff that was, 
inappropriate, you know? And so, I don't know. I feel like Benton to us kind of gave a like, oh, I just didn't know all of it was happening. Can you compare Dustin Hoffman to a Ferrari? A Ferrari? Yeah, like, like, <laughs> right? Wasn't there a yeah, car? Yeah, there was a car There was a car metaphor about how, <laughs> you, you know, when you have something that works at such a, like, um, sort of high, high-end, high-frequency kind of, um, that they're just, they're going to do what they're going to do. Yeah. I'm going to have to re-listen. Uh, yeah, I, I remember my, a car analogy. My impression of it is that Dustin was really the power player yeah. in that whole situation and was I don't think that Benton could have controlled this. No. I mean, I think yeah. maybe he didn't. I, I like I couldn't really say. Like I, I really don't lay a, a ton of blame at his. Feet. I, I don't either. No. I think it was like it was dust. It was a Dustin project, yeah. and Dustin was really had so much of the sort of star capital going into it. But I also do think that some people liked it. I mean, when I talked to Jane Alexander, she loved working with him. She had already worked with him on all the President's Men. And she thought this stuff he pulled was was great. So I don't know. I, I feel like it's it's complex. I, I, you know, it's it's worth knowing about. Yeah. In terms of how how certain actors work and what movie sets were like in the '70s, and I'm sure some still are. I, I to me it was like this this meeting of two people who had very different ideas of what acting was, right. and it was just this. Kaboom, you know. I think in light of information that's come out about Dustin Hoffman since, I'm in. I am. Um, I have a lot of respect for the level with which Robert Benton and Meryl Streep have been very gracious and not outspoken yep. about right. any negative opinions about what happened on that movie. Like it just is what it is. It happened, and and you know, we all won awards because of it. And yeah. Like they're just very gracious. And she was very gracious to both of them. And, I, like, I, I hope it didn't come off like we were accusing Robert Benton of anything. Like I said, I think he, um, I think he did his job. I, yeah, I don't know. He, um, but she was gracious to them when she won the award. The only time that I can remember her kind of saying something about Dustin Hoffman was, uh, I think it was the Graham Norton show, where it was the kill shag Mary no. game. It was, killed him? It, she killed Dustin Hoffman. And she really didn't have to think about it. I think it was Robert Redford was one of the other ones I can't remember. And I can't remember who the third... I think Jack Nicholson. I think oh, she I think she yep. said she would shag Jack and marry Redford yeah. and kill... And then she said, and killed... You know, she just kind of tossed up, like, of course I killed Dustin Hoffman. Right, right. But he's, you know... I don't know. He's, you know, getting back to the Jane Alexander thing, too, though... Jane Alexander replaced somebody else on that movie who ha- who was so frazzled by Dustin Hoffman oh, yeah. that she quit. Yeah. You know, so or was fired because she couldn't take it. I don't know, but like, That's I, where she, the was yeah. she was so fired. She had a she had a stammer, like a, right. a stutter, and um, it came out because she was so frazzled so by him, and then he just tossed her. It's just a it's uh, that's the kind of thing that I feel like doesn't make any sense to me is like the um complete lack of acceptance of somebody else's method just assuming that your way is the only way yeah Meryl Streep had a way I mean with what she was going through she didn't need anybody to do anything to her for her to get to where she needed to be to be emotional you know exactly and she also is not a method actress so she you know she's not going on that set thinking I need to dredge up something from my past in order to make this, in order to feel this emotion or 
act this emotion. And that was what Dustin was all about. I mean, there's that famous story, act, act try acting, dear boy, right. that you know where he was sort of taking method acting to this kind of perverse extreme with himself and with other people. Right. It's one of my favorite things about her, actually, that she is not a method actress, that she believes and can successfully get there without <laughs> without digging up, dredging up some terrible thing from her past. I appreciate that about her. Although I think she does have her moments. You know, there there are stories of when she did doubt where she would kind of taunt um philip seymour hoffman in character before their fight scenes Mm. in order to get him kind of riled up and get combative the same thing with devil wears prada she very famously said kept herself at a distance and said Mm. i'm you know at the table read through she was very nice and then said and now i won't be speaking to you for the rest of the room don't take it personally you know so i think she does A little bit when the she she knows when to be close to somebody, and then the opposite end of that, she became best friends with Cher for Silkwood, and kind of like like it was pre-planned. Like mm-hmm. you're going to be my best friend because we're best friends in the movie. She, you know, there are moments I think where she does do what the role demands. Yeah, and know? I think you could also say that in Kramer versus Kramer if Dustin's plan was to get them to hate each other because they hate each other in the movie, like maybe it helped. I don't know. I mean, yeah. I, I, I think that, um, again, I don't like, I don't want to be the one justifying Dustin's behavior, <laughs> but I, I, I just think that there's a lot to it. Yeah. There's a lot to it in the way it interacted with the movie is just interesting. There's a lot there. Yeah. Right. I feel like actors conversations, like, you know, maybe it's, Maybe it's naive, but sometimes those conversations initially help everybody. You know, if you say, look, I feel like it would be really helpful if we mm-hmm. did this. Do you mind? Giving somebody a little bit of a choice rather than mm-hmm. shattering a glass yeah. that could have hurt her in, 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 in the hopes that it would scare her, which it did. You know, like, I just, I don't know. Or slapping somebody. Like, it just seems like there are lines that exist that exist for a reason, you know. Yeah. But anyway. Yeah, that to me, I think, is the most kind of riveting section of her again is the Kramer versus mm-hmm. Kramer stuff. It's certainly it's certainly all wonderful, but that like that section was just we like you said we didn't know about that. And it's very there was juicy. So <laughs> there's so much in there that just right. it builds for conversations like this. Well, I have to say, like from a narrative perspective, it was a gift because I didn't know it was coming until I started researching it, and it's almost like you know, in, I think video games, they call it the big bad. Like I really, you know, it's interesting. A lot of, um, reviews of the book and of other biographies I've noticed talk about how much the biographer likes or dislikes the subject. And I, that kind of threw me because I never thought of it like that. I really felt like I was writing about her as a protagonist and how she faced certain obstacles, you know, in a story. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those obstacles were authority figures, whether it's Robert Brustein, the dean of Yale School of Drama, or, um, you know, uh, various directors or whatever, or, you know, caring for John. And then to face sort of this major obstacle at the end and kind of triumph over him by winning the Academy Award and proving herself to me, it was just a great way. I mean, I knew, in fact, I had originally planned to take the book up through Sophie's Choice, but I just felt like it was over. Um, I felt like the story I wanted to tell was how she became a star. And by the time she got that first Oscar, like 
she was that was it it was Meryl Streep her 20s were over the 70s were over she had kind of triumphed over you know Dustin Hoffman the big bad and I just <laughs> felt like the book should end now right so uh so I, I ended up not even going with you know going into the 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 80s so much had you done much you know many interviews and prep for those couple of early 80s movies with French no women and no I because I was writing in order and you know in segments and after I finished with the whole like uh you know Kramer versus Kramer Manhattan thing and the Oscars in 1980 I just felt like you know she's on the cover of Newsweek and she won an Oscar and she's like booked for her next three movies. Right. She has, you know, a husband and a kid. It just feels like this yeah. is the end. You know, everyone knows the rest. And for me, the, one of the goals of the book was to tell people things they didn't know. And as soon as she, she becomes, you know, this sort of much praised star on the cover of magazines, I felt like, you know, that, that again, it's like the just kids, Patty Smith thing. It's like, I want people to fill in the blanks on their own from what is already known about her. Yeah. Or like, I mean, another way you could, <laughs> you could, uh, another metaphor you could draw is like, you know, Anakin Skywalker becoming Darth Vader, <laughs> not in like an evil sense, but just in the sense like, of like, okay, story. the story ends when like the helmet gets put on yeah. and he starts breathing through it and okay, got it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, she is sort of superhero, isn't she? <laughs> She's got a nice origin story now. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's pretty exciting it's to be the one. That. Yeah, that's pretty exciting to be the one who gets to yeah. write the origin story. So there was never a plan to do a follow-up, Meryl, the '80s years or anything. Honestly, no. No. And those '80s movies are not my favorite Meryl Streep movies. Interesting. Uh, so I didn't really feel like I ever wanted to write a, you know, about the making of. Iron Weed and Out of Africa. Yeah. I just, in a way, to me, like they're this genre of movies that were in the 80s and won all the Academy Awards in the 80s that are like these three hour long sort of sweeping dramas. And, you know, my favorite Meryl Streep movies are, none of them are from the 80s. So, I don't know. Yeah, I just, I, yeah, I, I never had a plan to do a part two. Interesting. So you keep up with Meryl now as just hobby as a fan oh yeah I mean I run out to see everything and yeah (laughs) so have you had outside of the correspondence that you mentioned have you had do you ever just bump into her at any of the other screenings or anything that you go to oh here's a story I did okay (laughs) as I was finishing up the book I was writing I wrote a New York Times profile of um Alan Cumming when he was in Cabaret and his memoir was coming out. And at the time he threw a a party in his dressing room every night called Club Cumming, which is now a bar. It just grew out of his dressing room party. So I went to a bunch of them. Um, The first time I went, Monica Lewinsky was there. (laughs) And this is a small dressing room. Dressing rooms are not palatial on Broadway, even when you're the star. Um, It would just be like 50 people crammed in this room. And so then I went to a second night of club coming and I'm talking to someone and suddenly I look over their shoulder and there is Meryl Streep with one of the daughters. I can't, I think it was Grace. And they're like huddling, talking to Linda Eman, who was in the show. Yeah. And <laughs> this poor person I was talking to, I was just like, I just like my slaw, Jack's jaw slacking and I was like <laughs> speechless. And I was like, sorry, uh, what? <laughs> And um, 
it was, you know, it was like while I was writing the book. So I was just this, I don't know. I, 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 my husband was there, thank God. And I was like, do I, do I say something? Do I talk to her? Like, this isn't like a premiere or anything. This is sort of a private party in a very small dressing room. I feel like I should say something. And, you know, by the time I worked up the courage, she was sort of about to leave. And I was like, hi, uh, I'm Michael. I'm, I wrote you that letter. I'm writing that book. And, And she was like, oh yes. Hi. I shook my hand. And then I turned to Grace and said, yes, and I met you backstage at that thing in the public theater. And she was like, right, of course. And when I turned back, Meryl was gone. So it's like <laughs> she was out of there and she certainly was gonna, wasn't going to stay for me. But it was, I mean, that was, I was uh, like beside myself to be yeah. in this tiny dressing room and there she appears. And I basically had spent a year and a half getting up every morning and thinking about her, which is just a weird thing for any yeah. biographer is that you live so much of your life around this person who either is dead or you don't really know or even if you're interviewing them it's just a lot of life to live sort of around someone so to see her just materialize was crazy yeah and not not be prepared for it yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) by the way everybody Meryl's coming tonight is a nice warning although maybe (laughs) no there was no warning right she was just there right Oh, magic. <laughs> just appeared like a vision. That's amazing. A- apropos of absolutely nothing, I find myself thinking of something you said a minute ago when you were talking about biographies, how much they like or don't like their subject, and my mind immediately went to, that's an interesting idea, writing a biography on somebody who you don't like. You know, because doesn't everybody, well, if you are writing a biography, don't you generally appreciate the person? But then there are biographies on Hitler, so, you know. I think, I Can think, you write that book? Oh, there are plenty of negative it. biographies. I mean, this one that just came out about Susan Sontag, I've, I haven't read it, but I've read reviews that just talk about how it yeah. kind of rips her down from the pedestal and whatever. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of appreciation in this takedown, but yeah, I mean, there have been t- tons of sort of, you know, takedown biographies, you know, for me, I, I just that's true. I, writing about any book is hard enough. Um, yeah, I just I just didn't really I didn't never thought of myself. I was never comfortable with the idea of being like judge and jury over someone's personhood, like life. Mm-hmm. I just never thought of myself that way, and I just went in kind of loving her, and you know, came out with just a deepened appreciation of who she was. Yeah, and that comes across as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that would just be... I mean, like, signing on for a project like that would seem so... Daunting. Awful (laughs) to, like, write something about somebody who... Like, why would you spend your, you know, a year of your life or however long it takes to write a a book, you know, writing about somebody, like, that's just so toxic, you know? But there are reasons to do it. We need those books as well. But how long did it take you to to write the book? I think a year and a half-ish. Who, who was a particularly, it doesn't matter, famous or, or non, who was somebody who was um, somebody that, who gave you a lot of, like, particularly interesting insights, would you say? Who well, was a good there was this kind of surprise character of Mike Booth, her high school boyfriend, mm-hmm. who I just stumbled upon. I mean, I was really, I went to her hometown library and just, like, copied names out of a book, a directory, and just called him, and he was like, oh, yeah, uh, I know Meryl. I got a lot of stuff. I should I should show it to you. And then it turned out, you know, I had he he was living in I think Rhode Island, and he came in and had lunch with me, and he had saved all of her letters from 1969, from when she was a freshman wow. at Vassar, and he was in Vietnam, and I was just like, wow, this is like a whole other dimension, and this is something no one has. 
you know, I mean, I think some people in the end felt that I put in too much of this guy, but I was so captivated by him. I thought it was amazing that she had this whole relationship with someone who was in Vietnam, kind of writing letters back home to her. And then, you know, however many years later, just like five or so, you know, um, six or seven, you know, she does the deer hunter and it's kind of, she was that person for somebody, this kind of girl from girl back home. Um, so I just thought he had so much detail in what he remembered and what he was able to give me. And also the, these letters were incredible. I mean, just her writing about the first, the day she finished reading a, the portrait of the artist as a young man, as a, as a freshman at Vassar and, you know, feeling so lonely that she wanted to go down the hall and tell someone to feel her head, um, to see if she had a fever, just to feel someone's hand on her forehead. I mean, those kind of, I mean, these are things that she probably doesn't even remember because there is some letter that she wrote 50 years ago. Right. So I found that all very compelling and put a lot, put a lot of it in. But he was, yeah. I found him to be just a very compelling person and someone who was very nervous about being part of the book. So it was a long process. But um, yeah, and then, I mean, tons of people. I thought Benton was great. I mean, I just thought he was so sweet and so lovely. humane and has so much um, texture to what he would say he's really funny too he's really funny really really a sweet guy um and then after the book the week the book came out i uh, or the month i i got the ifc center around the corner here from here to let me do like a little meryl street film festival and so i actually we had a screening of kramer versus kramer and benton came and did a q a with me afterward which was that's amazing fantastic. and we also did one the week before with jerry schatzberg who directed uh what's it called the seduction of joe tynan yeah so I got wow. these two direct, I mean, the only, and then we also showed um, The Deer Hunter, but obviously I couldn't get Michael Cimino. I couldn't get him on the phone also. I, I tried really hard, but I mean, he is such a, was such a freaky character that, yeah. you know, I, who knows? I mean, he's a, in a way a complete mystery, but, but no, I mean, Benson, it was great that he was participating so much. Wow. Um, what was the process like with, with Booth or Benton or when particularly with somebody like um, Booth did did you like send him what you had done uh, for like an approval process or did you like let him know what info you were including like yeah. what, what was sort of the approval back and forth yeah, process well, for with him, your yeah for him I did give him some approval process okay because he asked for it, you know? It's yeah. like people, uh, plenty of people are just like, hey, I'll sure, happy to do an interview and then never, never hear from them again, and that's fine. But he was so nervous about it um, that I just wanted to make him feel comfortable. And I said, well, I can I can just tell you everything that's gonna, that I'm gonna use, and you can make changes, you can say no to things. And so that really helped him kind yeah. of ease into the whole thing. Nice, okay, so on a kind of uh, perhaps lighter uh-huh. note you mentioned that you don't find her 80s stuff to be her best work i find myself curious what what is your favorite mural we usually ask people for a top five is that possible i can do a top three pretty easily okay and it doesn't have to be official this isn't like you know no i do it's I, not I, laminated or anything. i've been i've been asked this question a lot so okay. i do have an answer um i mean well number uh i guess number three is um Death Becomes Her, just because I loved it so much, like, wow. growing up, and <laughs> I could watch it any moment of any day. Okay. Um, and then my top two, I think I have a, it's a tie between 
Kramer versus Kramer and The Devil Wears Prada, mm -hmm. which are very different, but I think they have something very important in common, which is that both of them are based on books where her character is the villain, and she kind of made that character the secret hero. Yeah. So I think she kind of worked a little empathy magic in both cases and kind of changed the story. That is amazing. That is I've a... never considered that. Those are both <laughs> like, in your top five too, aren't they? They are. <laughs> they definitely are. I don't. I think Kramer versus Kramer has fallen off of my top five. I can't remember, but um, <laughs> you guys keep like a running list. We do. We yeah. do. Well, well, we started with the podcast. We had no ranking beforehand, but but we sort of started. And, and have ultimately found it incredibly challenging and almost pointless because it changes every day. And yeah. it's, I mean, it's like, it's like anything else. It's like the Oscars. How do you compare this movie to this Completely movie? subjective. 1993 or whatever year, Beauty and the Beast was up for Best Picture. I'm sorry. How do you put that up against Bugsy, which was up that year? Seriously, how do you compare and say this one is the best movie of that year? It's kind yeah. of silly. And um, so it is, it's similar to that. Lists are inherently subjective and based upon, like, we both uh, we're, found ourselves very moved by the post. Now, that's one that over time, you know, may or may not end up being, like, one of her greatest things. But at the moment, it was absolutely stunning, you know. And so that's really high up there. But the question we're debating right now is we actually do two lists. We we do best performances and best overall movies. Oh, that's very different. We're struggling. Very different. And they don't, I mean, they don't match yeah. for us either. We're struggling with the movies thing and almost debating whether or not we should just pull. Yeah. Because that is, uh, it's just impossible to compare the deer hunter to like the homesmen. The, you know, well, that one not, actually, they're both like so dark and overly long. But, but like, we're talking about like tiny, like cameos versus like full roles. Yeah, you, you yeah. know, those it's very things. It's, it's, it's not a useful comparison, I don't think. <laughs> um, but like, uh, Julie and Julia is in my top five performances, and I, it's really not the best movie. But her performance is so warm and so lovely. I think the same could be said about Postcards from the Edge. In yeah. A way. You know, it's. I've always loved her performance in that movie. Nostalgia and actually, I, favorites. It's yeah. nostalgia, yeah. And I think the movie itself is actually pretty good, but it's it's just one of those that maybe not quite as strong as some of her other. It's a it's an odd movie, you know. She's she's had some left field choices. I mean that in the best way. I love that movie, but it's an odd movie, you know. Yeah. Um, I've talked about this before, but Kramer versus Kramer was one of the first Meryl Street movies I ever saw, and I was I don't know. Five or six, my my mom would watch it, and I mean that little mm. kid falling off the jungle gym and <laughs> cutting him. I mean it left a big impression. She left a big impression. So I was like watching her from very little, like sort of obsessed. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh, she has my name. Yeah. <laughs> she sure does. <laughs> yeah, and that, I mean I'm, I grew up in Manhattan and kind of the local the, on the Upper East Side, and that movie is kind of an Upper East Side yeah. movie, so to me it has this extra little pull of just, that's the city, kind of as my early earliest memories of it were. Yeah. So and it also has a nostalgic, yeah. Yeah, I I mean, I loved, I, as I was writing that chapter, I would visit some of the places like uh, J.G. Mellon's, where they have their lunch. Yeah. Bit, you know, I went on a little Kramer versus Kramer tour, like the courthouse is, you know, right down downtown here. And there are a lot of, there are a lot of, you know, real places in it. Wow. 
that's really neat. You were gonna tell us a story. Oh, is that what? Is yeah, that yeah, what you're I, yeah. Ask? I'm like, I've been I'm ready. dying to tell you guys. Yeah, I've been like, <laughs> when's a good place to insert this know, question about this lunch? We I'll don't tell you things. Okay. <laughs> okay, okay. I'm just honestly, I am just still coming down off the high from the lunch I had today. Here's who I was in the company of at 12 noon to 2 p.m. today. I had lunch with Christine Baranski. Oh shit. And Cynthia Nixon. What? And Glenn Close. Oh, what? that and, was And and Whoopi Goldberg. Oh, yeah. Stop. What? In All the of them what? at once. What? So what was it was the five of you? Yes. It was I, the five of us. I'm high just listening to the name. I just can't I can't even believe it was real. What? Okay, so here's what here's what it is. <laughs> um it's it's um Today is what would have been Mike Nichols' birthday. Oh, yeah. And so um, these four actresses had lunch with him at the same exact place for his last birthday five years ago, for his birthday lunch. And so um, there's this book that's coming out that's an oral history of Mike Nichols uh-huh. um, called Life Isn't Everything, and the, one of the authors of it pitched as a talk of the town piece for the New Yorker, why don't we get them all together on what would have been his birthday and have them all talk about that lunch. And I was like, if you can make, if you can get them all in the same room at the same time on his birthday, like, yes, I will happily do that. And it all, they all showed up. That's amazing. So we just spent two hours talking about Mike Nichols. <gasps> I was, it was like an out of body experience because I like one of the, any one of those people I'd be like, okay, I have to be on my best interview game, but all four of them, I mean, honestly, I didn't say much because they were all just talking amongst themselves and I was like in heaven pinching myself. But there was this one moment to bring it back to Merrill where they were talking about, I, I, I had a copy of this oral history on me and I, I took it out and they're all, they all gave interviews for it. And Christine Baranski said, oh, I love the last quote in the book, the Merrill quote. Will you read it aloud? And to me. And so I said, okay. And then I, I turned to the last page of the book and read this Merrill quote. And, the, and like in the middle of it, I realized I am playing the role of Meryl Streep <laughs> for these four people. Like I'm the Meryl Streep stand-in at this lunch, just by happenstance. And then I died. <laughs> That's amazing. Isn't that crazy? Anyway, I won't say more than that because this piece, I still have to write it, but um, it was pretty fun. Watch for that in The New Yorker. Yes. Wow. I'm looking forward to that. I feel like we could have alternately done a Glenn Close podcast. I feel like we talk about certain actresses, certain other actresses all the time. Jessica Lange, Glenn Close, Sissy Spacek I bring up a lot because I love Sissy Mm. Spacek. Diane Keaton. Uh, Diane Keaton. Um, Yeah, there are a couple others, I think, as well. Jane Fonda. Um, but yeah, there are, I feel like we could have just as easily done a Glenn Close podcast to tell you the truth. I mean, like, so all of the, all of them are amazing. So. I just recently rewatched the pilot episode of Damages mm-hmm. just mm. to watch Glenn Close because she's so magnificent in it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and as you can imagine, every story about Mike Nichols is amazing. So oh, just hearing them all talk about him was so fantastic. 
Yeah, I really, I, I, I have to get a fact checker to fact check that it was, it was not a dream I had. <laughs> like, especially when they asked me to like read Meryl's quote, I, it's just like this could have easily happened in a dream. Yeah. <laughs> you, did you get a picture with them? No, I, 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 I don't. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I know. I try it, to play it cool, but it feels weird to do that. But I mean, you could have just done that just in case we need it for the article thing, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was I I put all my concentration into just acting like a normal person and yeah. not and like playing it cool and not acting like a starstruck child, which I was. Did you find wherever you were in whatever like I assume public restaurant? Yeah. Were was every table just looking over, going, "What the hell is happening?" All of these you know, people. Actually, this... my my back was to the rest of the restaurant, so I don't know. But the the waiter came over at some point early on and because they were right by the window by park avenue south and said you know there's some people taking pictures from the street do you want me to lower the blinds and they were all like i guess please so uh, um, well it's quite a table it was quite a table i'd be taking pictures too oh my god actually i wouldn't i'm i am very civil like when i meet or am around act, actors in particular i am very camera averse well, yeah, I mean, there are cer- I feel like there are certain, you can read somebody's yeah. energy and feel whether or not that's something that would be received or not. There are certain circumstances in which I feel like people are fine with that and other circumstances in which it's inappropriate, but, you know, yeah. I feel like if you're spending time with them. You're very good at, you're very good at asking. Depends. Yeah. Depends on the circumstance. I didn't. I didn't ask for a picture with Tony Bennett. I didn't ask. <laughs> Bernadette Peters was at the thing, and we had a long conversation. I didn't ask for one with her because there are just sometimes when it feels like no, this yeah. would ruin the moment. Yeah. You know. Um, sometimes, sometimes the memory of it's enough. You know, and it. I also think it depends on if you've had a genuine encounter with somebody or yeah. not too. If it's right. just like passing somebody or you just saw somebody in a play and it feels like they would never remember me anyway then you know go for it what do you got to lose (laughs) but you know in those circumstances getting a picture with somebody always feels strange too because you know it means so much more to you than it does to them it's it's a transactional thing that doesn't people are so self-conscious now because of instagram they know that it's going to go up somewhere and that people are it's going to be for public consumption so it's not really the same it's not doesn't really feel like it's for you so I don't know. In, when I'm being a you know professional journalist, mm-hmm. I just I try to avoid the temptation to ask for stuff like that. Um, I think I think if I just happened across someone, I may feel differently. But yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I just had a fascinating discussion um, about how the stage door has now sort of become an unspoken part of the job for actors. Oh yeah. And especially because security requires them to go through the stage door, they can't sort of find a separate exit because of safety issues that, you know, the theater security really wants them filing through the stage door. So they're sort of obligated. Uh. And there are so many actors now who have to, who feel it necessary to like, announce on social media why they're not doing this right like Laura Benanti does that a lot I'm sick I cannot be shaking hands yeah Ben Platt did that quite a bit yeah um, when he was doing Dear Evan Hansen and I I feel bad for them that that has become something they feel they have to do like they should be able to leave the stage door and not have to make any excuses for themselves I went to see uh Ed Harris last night in To Kill a Mockingbird. It was actually his, you know, first night taking over the role from Jeff Daniels. And when I went into the box office in the afternoon, there was a couple in front of me who were buying tickets and they were perfectly lovely. But the woman said, 
do I get to meet the cast afterwards to the guy, <laughs> to the to the guy taking the ticket? What's that was exactly weird. my reaction. I was like, there's no way she just asked that question, meet right? The cast. And the guy, the ticket taker had the this weirdest response. Not a VIP response. attendant. <gasps> yes. What did he say? He said, probably. <laughs> <laughs> he said, it's Ed Harris's first night, so probably. And she goes, well, good. It's my birthday, so I wanted to meet them and and thank them. And I was like, lady, are you out of your mind? And I was like, first of all, Ed Harris, I don't know if he's going to be so warm to that. Like, I don't know. He just seems like somebody who may not be all about the stage door thing. Maybe yeah. maybe he is, and I, I've read him wrong. I don't know anything about him. I just He doesn't give that vibe to me. It's like that's his thing is like signing autographs and taking pictures. But the presumption of... Do I get to meet the cast? I'm spending, you know, 150 bucks or whatever on this ticket. That means I get to, like, make them do a song and dance for me, right? That's so strange. And so opposite to I, I like yeah you're mm-hmm. you're exactly right things are shifting in a way of it's it's Instagram it's social media we have access to celebrities and there's also the thing of you know if somebody comments on something and that celebrity responds to it then there's this whole thing of like well now we're in a conversation we can keep it going instead of no that was your moment with them they saw your thing they acknowledged it that's, great. that's yeah. it <laughs> that's, that's what you get you know no, I mean, I, I try to just take it one notch down from that always. Like, <laughs> yeah. even, even when I got this lovely note from Meryl about the Fredo article, I didn't write back to her. Yeah. I wrote back to thanking her publicist saying this means so much, thank you. But it's like, I'm not going to use this opportunity to like open up some kind of dialogue because she just wanted to say what she wanted to say. And, yeah. You know. I'll... Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of future Meryl, have there been <laughs> press screenings? Have you seen the new Little Women? No. No, I'm very. I haven't excited. pressed screens. I haven't been to one. I'm dying to see it. They yeah. they did one here in New York because yeah. they were. Oh yeah, I they did. I think everybody except Emma Watson was was here for it. Yeah, I saw a photo of Meryl Streep with Caitlin Kinnunen from The Prom, actually. Another Meryl movie that's going to be coming up. Right. Coming up, which will be fun. Did you see the show? Yeah. It's so fun. Yeah, it's yeah, a good it's part really for her. Yeah. Do you have any, uh, we obviously spend a lot of time, we kind of covered this a little bit with the Adam Driver thing, but we do spend a lot of time talking award show stuff. We do. Is there anybody who you find yourself pulling for this award season? For Whether it's for the performance or you just like them and want them to win, I'm like that with Annette Benning. Just give her, mm. just <laughs> just give yeah, her that Oscar already. already. Have you seen that movie? The I haven't. I know. I Sometimes I don't care if I even mm-hmm. see the movie. I just want her to win. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Um... I mean, mostly I think Adam Driver would be great for best actor. I also think Joe Pesci mm-hmm. um, for The Irishman would be great. Um, gosh, uh, who else? Joe Pesci, you know, the last time he won, his thank, oh, yeah. thank you speech was thank you. And he walked yeah, in. Yeah, thank you. Two words. Bye. <laughs> um, who, okay, wait, best actresses who this year? Probably. Well, Renee Zellweger, probably. Oh, right. I mean, yeah, that would be fine. I just, in general, I don't love the thing of you play a real person, you automatically get an Oscar. Especially. I thought she was fine in it, but I, I don't know. I just, I'm always a little bit biased against that kind of performance. Like, you know, even the year when um, Philip Seymour Hoffman won for Capote against mm-hmm. Heath Ledger for Brokeback Mountain, yeah. I just felt like, okay, those are very different performances. They're both great actors, but... I just knew it was like, oh, they're gonna honor like the the imitation 
of Capote. So they tend to go for flashier, bigger. Yeah, and playing real people yeah. is just—it's one of those Oscar things. Especially if they're singing or, or like dying. Or like Rami Malek yes. last year. Yeah. It's like I don't know. I just I get a little bored of that, mm-hmm. and I um. So who's who else would would win Best Actress? I can't remember. Saoirse Ronan for Little Women is likely mm-hmm. to be nominated. Cynthia Erivo, I think, for Harriet is up oh, there. Yeah. I think Scarlett Johansson for Marriage Story is right. supposed to be likely to be nominated. I feel like I'm missing somebody. Um, it's one of those rare years where the Best Actor race is more crowded than Best Actress. I'm very interested to see what happens with that. Yeah. There are, yeah. I mean, Robert De Niro and The Irishman, any other year, would just be a cakewalk to best actor but i just feel like you have adam driver you have um like a whole bunch of other people you know eddie murphy i mean and then there's always the academy awards playing catch-up and rewarding somebody who they haven't you know over somebody like de niro who's won a couple already so they might say oh well de niro already has a couple let's give it to eddie this time because he doesn't have one um aquafina for the farewell oh right yeah aquafina um else they got they have um lupita nyong'o for us yeah i feel like that i feel i'm surprised because i have seen her name in the conversation but i feel like that movie didn't do well enough that it, i'm surprised there's still that yeah, kind of traction site so who knows yeah um i feel like once upon a time in hollywood is supposed to do very well right with brad pitt, oh yeah Leo. brad pitt i mean brad pitt was in uh you know he was great in that. i guess he would be supporting right um, I can see him winning supporting, definitely. I, but also he would be up against Joe Pesci and maybe Al Pacino mm-hmm. for The Irishman. So. And then there's people like Jonathan Price in The Two Popes. Right, yeah, The Two Popes. Oh, Joaquin Phoenix for The Joker. Joaquin, Joaquin that's the Phoenix. big one, yes. That's so, big one. I haven't seen The Joker. I haven't either. But I'm pretty much against it yeah, <laughs> on principle. I, and I really don't want him to win Best Actor, but, you know, I'll see it eventually. Maybe I'll change my mind. But I just feel like... Uh, I, I don't do know. It. It's just, uh, bleh. yeah. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I can't, uh, I can't go near it with a 30 foot pole. I just, bleh. Ah. Yeah. yeah, no. Um, Adam, Uncut Gems is supposed to be with mm. Adam Sandler is supposed to be in the running. I've always liked him. I don't know. I, he's not the most popular person for you know real actors, but I don't know. I was actually in um, my hotel the other day um, as I was going to sleep. They had 50 First Dates on, which I hadn't seen in like 10 oh, years. Gosh. They're both really charming in that movie. I I'm, I really am surprised how charming um, Drew Barrymore and Adam Sandler are together. They like, are. They really are good together, you know? I haven't seen that in a long time. Um, Those are the big ones. Bombshell yeah. is still sort of in the Oh, mix. right. Bombshell. Oh, I'm excited yeah. about that one more than anything else, yeah. I think. I wouldn't mind Charlize. They're actually saying Charlize she kind of really puts herself in the in the best actress conversation. I, uh, you know, I I hope Nicole Kidman has something substantial. Um, I'm blanking on her name. The other one in that movie, who's also oh Margot Robbie, mm-hmm. um, who's also in Once Upon a Time. Um, yeah, I think she's more likely to be nominated for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, but she was great in. I mean, I really liked her. I liked that movie in general and thought she was really good. Even though she doesn't, I mean, it's not a huge part. Right. But I don't know. Gosh. And Laura Dern. Laura Dern is so good in Marriage Story. I mean, she's fantastic. And everyone, and like Laura Dern, everyone just loves Laura Dern. Right. Yeah. And we haven't even seen what she, you know, we haven't seen what she's done in Little Women either. Right. Yeah. 
And that's, a, I think, a pretty big role for her in Little Women, isn't it? Yeah. You're the little woman expert, I don't know. I would dep- <laughs> it, de- it depends on how she wrote it. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Uh, but I would assume Marmy has a pretty substantial role, as always. Yeah. <laughs> they, yeah. The reviews um, that I've seen say, uh, actually, it's I, don't, I still don't know how to say her name, Florence Pugh. Pew? That's yeah. what I thought. Oh, right, it, yeah. They say, actually, she's the one that is really, like, she steals the movie. And kind of, I think whatever, whichever role that she's playing Maybe. is a little bit ex- expanded compared to previous versions. It's a little bit less. Mm-hmm. So the other one is Lori, right? Lo- no, Lori's yeah. the boy. Well, yeah. I don't, I don't remember. It's Joe, <laughs> Amy, Joe. Meg, and Beth. So, <laughs> like, what Twitter says is a little bit less Joe in this one and a little bit more of... Amy. Amy. Interesting. Well, so not going to be a Meryl year at the Oscars, probably. Probably not. <laughs> I think the laundromat was a little bit re- not received as well as... Um, yeah. I think that was probably her oh, chance. Right. Yeah. I didn't love that movie. Yeah, we were we were on the fence about it. How I, did you feel about the, the ending? Well, can can we speak openly about the ending? Of course. Yeah, yeah. Spoil- we did. We already, we already oh, yeah, have, yeah. yeah. I thought it was bad like I, I felt really um I, I my reaction was like Ugh, this this is how you're ending the movie I mean first of all I felt like I, I kind of felt like that movie was everything that Meryl Streep's detractors <laughs> dislike about her all in one it was like a, an accent with like funny um first of all I knew she was that character the moment she was on screen right the Argentinian woman um and then I just I felt like the um, sort of a nice mom character that she played through most of it was fine, but I felt like Meryl was almost a little bored with the character, and she kept doing those sort of weird ticks that she does when I think she doesn't have enough to play. And then just the ending, I felt like it was a bit cheap to use Meryl Streep, the movie star, to kind of hammer home the point that we should care about this subject. Like, I didn't buy that she... Meryl Streep is like the world's expert on international fraud and like corporate tax so, laws. So yeah, corporate tax laws. So <laughs> having her tell it to us directly, I just felt was like you know if if the movie hasn't made us care, then don't have like Meryl Streep strip down her costume and tell us one more time. And then she strikes the Statue of Liberty pose, which I felt had nothing to do with this topic at all. I mean. I don't know. I just I just thought yeah. it was a bit of a it was a bit of a cheap. I, I don't know. I, there were other things in that movie that I really loved that had nothing to do with her, like the whole China um, yeah. part. I thought was amazing. Like, I would have loved to see just that be the entire movie. And I kind of respected it for being so episodic, but I don't know. It just didn't didn't quite work for me. It's interesting. I think well, you verbalized my issue with it much better than I did during our episode because I had just watched it when we sat down to record and I couldn't the end just felt so heavy-handed yeah heavy-handed um, yeah and I couldn't quite I couldn't quite wrap my head around why yeah. <laughs> but I think you captured it really well and I think that you know it was it was sort of around the, you know having just seen her be so good on um, Big Little Lies mm. it just made me think about how like she really needs some kind of internal conflict to play if she's just playing this one thing you know uh this one sweet lady from wherever um in the laundromat yep she just you can see her get a little restless and then something like big little eyes where she has this sort of cognitive dissonance and this like it was my i miss my son but was he an abuser and you know and then it kind of pours out i just think that's the best kind of meryl streep role when she has 
this naughty internal life and you see her struggling with something because she can do that better than anyone that's why she's Meryl Streep I mean that's why you know Kramer versus Kramer or you know Sophie's Choice Sophie's Choice is all about this woman being pulled between like this fun exciting new guy and this horrible feeling of guilt she has and you can see that they're both like wrestling away inside of her brain Mm -hmm. and you know to me that's what brings out her best work is inner conflict yeah yeah nice so besides the article that you mentioned is there anything Mm -hmm. else we should look out for anything you want to plug anything you got coming up oh gosh what Um, would you send our listeners to go check out besides her again of course um I mean, I'm working on a second book, which is going to take a long time, and there's no use plugging because it'll be <laughs> years from now. It's not a biography. That's the last thing I wanted to do <laughs> once I was done with that. But um, I don't know. I mean, um, you know, I'm a staff writer at The New Yorker, so I work there um, that people can check out. Um, most recently, a longer piece about Adam Driver. Um I, I write Talk of the Town, so I, I just did one recently on Isabel Huppert, oh, who's nice. another great actress yeah. who I was so excited to meet. And um, I don't know when this Mike Nichols lunch thing is coming out, but, you know, That's keep exciting. an eye out. That's yeah. exciting. So you got a chance to sit down with Adam Driver. And... Yeah, I spent a lot of time with him, yeah, That's over so the great. course of months. It was, you know, it's long. It's like a 7,000-word piece, so oh, it's nice. a lot of Adam Driver. Yeah. yeah. Wow. I'm, I've been really impressed by the work he's doing with veterans, I know. Uh, yeah. With his with his organization, and then I think he's got some stuff in development as well. I don't. Yeah, he's got a really interesting story. I mean, yeah. being in the Marines and. Yeah. Well, I'm interested to read that. Yeah. yeah, that's cool. Thank you for doing this. We yeah. appreciate it. Thanks for coming of over. Of course. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking time. Yeah. Yeah. It's well, very cool. Great to meet you guys. You yeah, too. Great to meet you too. That's all.